Hello and welcome to the Nutmeg Podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray, still your host despite a lucrative offer from Hospital Radio. Joining me in the studio to discuss issue 11 of Nutmeg are Graham Ruffin, a football writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian and The New York Times, among others. Neil Gibson, Director of Sport, Performance and Health at Orium, Scotland's Performance Centre. And Stephen McGowan, Chief Football Writer with the Scottish Daily Mail. First of all, a spontaneous question for all three of you. I'll begin with you, Stephen. It's the last uh, quarter of the season now. What's the most memorable of run-ins that you can recall? I'll probably narrow it down to the last seven minutes and I'll probably give away my, my answer. I mean, I'm of an age, unlike my, my younger friends here, to, uh, to remember Albert Kidd. May 1986, comes on as a sub for half an hour to play. Dens Park, Hearts only need a point to win the league. And uh, Albert Kidd blows him away uh, for Dundee with two amazing goals, actually, two fantastic goals. And, you know, we've had a number of them since then. We've, we've seen Rangers 2003 when Celtic were in Seville. We've seen the helicopter changing direction with Scott McDonald's goals. Um, 2008, we've seen a few since then. But for me... Probably it's a kind of nostalgia and your youth being the kind of soundtrack to your life, if you like. Uh, I just think, for me, Albert Kidd takes some beating. It's quite something to look at footage of that day as well, seeing the crowds and the, just the imagery of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I did a, I did a kind of e-book which sunk without trace because, I, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I think you really have to have a heartbreak to go with it. But, I mean, um, I, did, I did it on it because it was such a kind of special event, really. And um, the stories from it are incredible, you know, about, you know, Hearts on the way down from Dundee that day, stopping off in, in Perth to have a drink just to, because we were shell shocked. You know, it was just such an amazing um, event. You know, Craig Levine told me once that he had an illness that day, the virus, and he missed it. And uh, I think Roddy McDonald stepped in instead. Craig Levine has still never watched footage of that game all these years later. Can't bring himself to watch it because he's so traumatised by the events. And as we John Robertson, who will talk for Britain about it, and he, he tells a nice story as well about the week after Hartford in the Scottish Cup final. And they've obviously lost the league to Celtic that day. And they go to Hamden and they're playing Aberdeen in the final. And Alan McDonald has said to them all week, get this out of your head. Forget it, we've got a Scottish Cup to win. Forget all about it. We're getting to Hamden, we're going to win the Cup. This season we'll finish in a high, so get it out of your head. So they get it out of their head and they go to Hamden. And Alex Ferguson has put his Aberdeen players on the doors of Hamden to meet the Hearts players coming in and to say to him, sorry you lost the league last week, lads. I mean, that was devastated for you, gutted, really sad. And it was right back in there again. They lose an early goal, they lose 3-0. Alex Ferguson, mind games. <laughs> well, we recently had Ailey Doyle on bigging up Hearts and talking about the glory years. So we've just made the Hearts fans miserable in this edition after the high of last time. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And for you, an end to the season that sticks in the mind. Well I, well, I was going to use a Hearts example uh, from 05, 06. Because uh, you were at the club, club previously. Yeah, uh, and, and specifically the game against Aberdeen, Paul Hartley scored the, the penalty to 1-1-0 and I, I don't think I've experienced an atmosphere at any sporting event like inside Tynecastle that night, uh, which again, end of the season culminated in the, in the victory against Gretna, which which was pretty nervy, went to penalties, and especially after a tumultuous season with the changing of managers. Um but the the other example um, that, that sprung to mind was the Liverpool 13-14 season, um, where they went pretty much unbeaten from Christmas until the game against Chelsea. And having 
some recollection of the last time they won the league, but not particularly clear. That felt like as an adult the first time you were going to witness them win the league and they were playing so well, notable victories against, uh, I think, Manchester United. They beat, um, I think, the Arsenal 5-1 and then the, the Chelsea loss and then the draw to Crystal Palace, which is only the second draw since, since Christmas that year. Um, but still very memorable and, and just a huge amount to cheer about and a huge amount to feel positive about around the team. Um, and if you'll allow me to give you an example from a different sport, then the 2000 in Super League. Uh, and Super League goes to this playoff series at the end of it, at the end of the league. And, and St. Helens were playing Bradford at the old Nosley Road, which is a fantastic place to watch rugby league, right in the town. Ten seconds to go, they're losing. Bradford give away a penalty and St. Helens go the length of the pitch and score. Chris Joint, the captain, scores wins in the playoff game and they subsequently then go on to win the, the playoff series, get to grand final and beat Wigan with Chris Joint getting the man of the match. Uh, and although I'm not a St. Helens fan, it was just uh, a fantastic period of passage of play in the game and then passage of sport for them to get there, win the, win the trophy at the end of it. So they're my two, two favourites. After 20 Nutmeg podcasts, we finally had a mention of Rugby League, which pleases my northern soul so much. <laughs> I'm not sure how many uh, uh, listeners will be into their league, but it's good. And I, I, you, I often recommend going to a rugby league game to Scottish people as, a, as an authentic experience, which is what you get so much in football here. I think. Yeah. And, and if anyone is interested in that game, they can Google wide St. Helens wide to west, which was the um, which is the line that Eddie Hemmings used in the commentary that gets repeated now ad nauseum around the town centre whenever you bring up that game. So it is available to view if, if you want to. But you're absolutely right; it's a great sport and. Uh, Definitely worth a view if you're down south. And there was consolation for Stephen Gerrard for that slip that day. I noticed today going past a pub called uh, The Union that they offer him a free pint whenever he wants. There's a sign outside and it says something like Sandra and stuff and Gary McAllister. (laughs) It's it's nice that they've they've broadened it out though. So, you know, if he he wants to cheer himself up, he can pop down The Union um, near the Grand Old Opry in Glasgow, however you pronounce it. Uh, Graham, for you... An end of season that sticks in the mind. Yeah, well, I, I think I'm partly on today to, spoiler alert, talk about Sterling Albion. So I'm going to pick a, a Sterling Albion example from the 2009-2010 season, which was the last time that, that Sterling Albion uh, were any good. Um, and uh, really, at the sec- um, coming into the, the last third of the, the second division season, and Sterling Albion are neck and neck pretty much with, with Alloa, who are, if you don't know, are pretty much Sterling Albion's number one rivals. There's a few... Rivals round there, Steny, Falkirk, Falkirk are always that level above. So the real rivalry has always been with Alloa. So last couple of games, because of the, it's just come out of the winter, so there's a rescheduled game at, at Cowden Beath, who were also in the picture as well. They finished third that year and actually went up through the playoffs. So basically this was an, an opportunity to elim- eliminate Cowden Beath, but also win, win the title um, if Sterling won this game. Half-time, 3-0 down. Um, and basically you're thinking from going, you're going to win the title, you're thinking this isn't happening this year. At that time, which I think we'll talk about later as well, that the fan um, ownership campaign was up and running, so you're thinking, is this the best chance we're going to get for a long time to to win a title? Um, And um, basically Ian Russell scores twice um, quite quickly, or I think he scored one quite quickly into the second half, 3-1, and then he scored another one in maybe 87, 88 minutes. Ian Russell, who had formerly the season before had played for Alloa and had been a hate figure for Stirling Albion fans, um, was now you know doing doing the job for Stirling. 
90th minute, Andy Graham um, cross comes into the box. Now, just as well, Andy Graham's not ever really been one to to care too much about his looks because he's he's stuck. It, it must it wasn't that high off the ground. The cross he stuck his head right in there, headers it into the back of the net. Sterling Albion, who filled out the, the one of the big stands at Cowdenbeath, everyone goes nuts. Um, it wasn't until about a minute later we realised. Andy Graham's still lying on the ground and Andy Graham is out cold and Andy Graham needs medical attention. Um, thankfully, he was okay and I actually played the game. It was on a Tuesday night. Uh, it, that's what was mentioned the rescheduled game for was it was a Tuesday night and then the Saturday at Brechin, going up to Brechin to to um, get the point that Albion needed um, with Alawa. You're checking your phone, Al- have Alawa scored? Uh, they, if Albion got a point, Alawa needed to win by eight goals. So you thought it wasn't going to happen, but then... I'll, I'll, uh, Sterling take the lead in the, in the game against Brechin, 1-0, then 1-1, then Brian Allison gets sent off early into the second half, hanging on for dear life for until the 90th minute, got over the line, and I'll always remember waiting for the helicopter coming down, you know, there's, there's that kind of hushed silence after everyone celebrated the full-time whistle, until the helicopter appears on the horizon, at which point everyone's going crazy. And um, I'm, I'm from a little village outside... Uh, outside Dunblane called Dune and it's on the A9 so whenever Celtic or Rangers or, or one of the bigger teams are travelling up north even to Perth or wherever you know you'd always see Rangers scarfs at the window Celtic scarfs at the window you get used to that that's the only time I can really remember we're heading up the A9 it was all Sterling Albion scarfs we fill out I, I, I don't know if, uh, how many people know Glebe Park but there's one big stand at one end of the of the, of the goals we filled out that whole stand and it just felt like uh a big moment, which in my uh, lifetime as a fan, particularly recently, hasn't there haven't been many of those. So that's the that's the one I would pick out. Absolutely. And before we come to seamlessly asking you more about your piece in Nutmeg Issue Eleven, we need to talk about the helicopter. When did the helicopter start? It's just manner from heaven for a, a journalist, surely, isn't it? Speculating about where the helicopter will be. Yeah, they used to leave from Cumbernauld, didn't they? Was it Cumbernauld? Did the eighties when it all started, or? I think I did uh, when I worked at STV. I went to the airfield at Cumbernauld. Yeah. It used to be a kind of a, a journalistic trope, wasn't it? You, you would send someone along to, to 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 be in the helicopter when it took off to deliver the lead trophy to wherever. But I, I can't actually remember when it started. But of course, Ron Ferguson's follow-up book to the Black Diamonds and the Blue Brazil is called Helicopter Dreams, isn't it? Which I just it was a new concept to me moving up from England, which is probably the same to you that, about the helicopter on the last day waiting to take the trophy to people. It's a lovely thing. It is, yeah. <laughs> okay, Graham, tell us about the piece you've written then um, for issue 11. Yeah, well, I've written about Sterling Albion, as I've mentioned in my team, and it's a wider look at Albion, really. Um, for people who don't know kind of um, Scottish, the Scottish socio- socio-economic landscape, Stirling is, is a, a fairly big town, uh, city even, um, one of six in, in, in Scotland, and I think it's the, it's the only city that... Um, hasn't had a, a top-flight team, um, not for a long time anyway. I've been going back to the, the 60s and 70s that have had a top-flight team, but not for a long time. So it, it's always just been a little bit of a strange one that a place like Stirling, where there are a lot of football fans, uh, um, but they, they, they tend to support other teams. Obviously, it's 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 within driving distance of Edinburgh, Glasgow, even up to, I know, St. Johnson fans from where I grew up to, to go up to Perth. So um, it's just, it's, 
it's it was a look at the the factors that that have contributed to Sterling really being. I mean, they're in the third division now. Last season they were they were flirting with uh, relegation out of the pyramid and, uh, completely, and uh, you know crowds of four hundred at, at most five hundred. So it was just a look at the the kind of factors that that have contributed to why Sterling are a bit of an exception in Scotland. You start with a depiction familiar to many people in small towns in Scotland, and that is of the buses leaving to Glasgow and to Edinburgh, in fact, and even further afield to the northwest of England and things. That just must be so frustrating. Yeah, it is. It is a bit frustrating. Um, as you mentioned, there, there are buses leave from all over central Scotland to go to primarily Celtic and Rangers, I have to say, but I know there's a there's a Hearts bus and I know that there's a, a bus that goes to Manchester United games from Aberdeen that will come down the A9 and I've spotted that a few times. So... Um, yeah, the Albion fan in me goes, you know, obviously not for Aberdeen people, but for people even from central central Scotland, you know, why are you not supporting your 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 home team? But I know it's not as easy as that, and people, it's not just purely down to geography. But it was just a a a, a, a funny way to kind of, I thought, a funny way to kind of start that piece. Yeah. Looking at, yeah, I, I quite often have. I mean, I had a, I live in Maurice, hometown of Greenock, and it's the biggest Celtic supporters club in Scotland. And um, Saturday at half past one. If you're driving up past Tesco's in downtown Greenock, you will see four or five coaches all heading to Celtic Park. That, I mean, for Capital or for Morton, that would be, you know, a quantum attendance. It would be fantastic. But, and, and I, you know, I, I understand it. And I listen, I accept it. The media, we play a big part in this because the, the sort of duopoly of Celtic and Rangers and the wall-to-wall coverage and, the, and the, you know, we, we, we have played our partners and almost like killing our football clubs. But uh, that, that, that for me was an interesting part about Graham's piece, which is that all these clubs who are in the, the, the sort of sphere of Rangers and Celtic are just gobbled and swallowed up. And Sterling probably is the other way, the way Greenock is down the coast. And in that, in that sort of like uh, radius, it's just it's survival of the fittest. It's really hard, isn't it? What do you think clubs can do about it? Well, Stirling, um it's the same for many clubs in Central Scotland. I mean, this is this is an argument that's that's raised many times, and I know it, I know it's not as simple as get you know mergers never really work. Obviously, we've seen Inverness, and they they still have problems with mergers. But if you were starting again, you wouldn't have Stennis Muir, Alloa, Stirling, uh, Falkirk, uh, East Stirling. Of course, have dropped at the pyramid recently, but you wouldn't have all those teams in that area. You would pro- possibly have one, but even looking at those teams, I think Stirling Albion, um, as I went to uh, in, in depth in the piece, um, they don't own their, own their ground. It's owned by the council, so that leaves them at a, a disadvantage to even teams like Stennis Muir, who I think we're going to talk about pitches later on, but the, one of the things that I'll bring up later is you know they've got a, a plastic pitch, same with Alloa as well, and that for a club of that stature is such an important revenue stream. You know That pitch gets used not just for... Aloha and Stenny games, but it gets used for local games. I think um, Stennis Muir have got a, a few pitches or five-a-side pitches at the back of their ground as well. They they get used every single night, hours and hours and end. Albion have got nothing like that. They don't even really have a supporters club as such. There's a, a hospitality suite in the ground that gets transformed. I say transformed. There's a table with some with some bottles of booze on it uh, before the game, and that's about it. So. I would like to, you know, if I had, if I was, if I was rich, which you know I'm not, uh, and I had the money to give to Sterling Albion, it wouldn't be for players, it wouldn't be for 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 a, a top manager, it would be to give them a sustainable um, survival, I suppose, you know, a, a sustainable revenue stream like a, a plastic pitch or even the the five side pitches behind them, buy that for it because that's what I think Sterling Albion are lacking, and they they they, they are a community club, but they don't have the facilities to make the most of that. That's what's frustrating for me. 
they hosted actually us for the podcast I mentioned with Ailey Doyle and Eve Muirhead because it was an easy central place to get to. And I, having been there, totally understand your point about how much it could have been a revenue raising thing because all the facilities are there. There's you, so much there. There's, the there's the location, the walk from the station, 15 minutes, everything. There's so much there and none of it is owned by the club. No. The club are, are tenants it's there a, and, and that's frustrating. Not one penny from all this that surrounds Stirling Albion's rented home goes into their pockets. They are squatters in their own stadium. That's what you write. It's, it's a sad state of affairs. It is, and it, I do understand. I should probably qualify it by by adding how they ended up into this situation where the the club in the early nineties were in dire straits, and the council. If we had someone on from Stirling Council uh, here, they would argue that they saved, they helped save sure. save Stirling Albion by building them a stadium. By I think they may have bought the ground and the old Anfield ground, um, although I'm not certain about that. But they basically helped Stirling Albion out of a hole. But the long term impact of that has been huge and 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 really has resulted in a contraction of the club. Um, I mean, Stirling Albion aren't just a a lower league team now that you know they are the lowest. They are in the lowest league, and it, it's difficult to see how they how they uh, get out of that. Although things are looking a bit better now. Kevin Rukovic is in and a bit of a winning run now. Seems to be so. To cheer you up, I must say the table in the boardroom was the most polished table I've ever seen in my life. It was a, it was a work of art. I didn't put my cup down on it and not a coaster in sight. It must have been the oh, cutbacks. Ho- hopefully like the council that. don't own that as well. <laughs> One asset. <laughs> For many supporters, our dream is perhaps not to own our own club, but but the very concept of fan ownership is often our answer to a lot of problems. It's an easy answer. But yours wasn't smooth. It was a great story at the time. I remember rejoicing, thinking, yeah. this is the start. This is what's going to happen. This is the start of the revolution. I'm not saying it turned sour. That's the wrong word. But it didn't. It hasn't quite turned out perfectly. No, it certainly hasn't. And, and, and I do know that, I sh- again, I should qualify this by saying some Albion fans do have different opinions on this. I mean, the, the club is fairly safe from a position of we could go out of exist out of existence here entirely the club doesn't don't doesn't have those those real issues anymore um so it's i suppose it's better to have a club but as i say it has resulted in a, a contraction of the club i mean when i was i was growing up and i used to go to sterling games uh, albin games on the bus i would get the bus a 10 minute drive would take 45 minutes on this bus uh, as you stop through the rap lock and town centre but um, as a teenager you've either got the shopping centre to hang around in or go to an Albion game so we were going to go to an Albion game obviously but um, when when I went to games it was always about first division you're either in the first division a couple of times you know or one, once or twice maybe every 10 years or you were you were fighting to get into the first division and now it's now it's uh, really I mean last, as I say last season there was a, th- a threat at one point we're going to drop out of the, the pyramid entirely so um, yeah it, it, it hasn't been easy um, I think there's been a lot. I mean, we were the first club in Britain, I think, certainly Scotland, um, to be fan owned. So I think a lot of people have looked at Albion and, and taken lessons from that. Um, but at that level, I'm not sure if I think at a certain level it can work. A Hearts, oh. even a, even a, you know, it would work with us. I mean, you look at Spain, <laughs> Barcelona and Real Madrid are essentially fan owned. You know, Barcelona have these socios that. That, that, that everyone has a seat in the stadium. So I think if you get to a certain level, it can work. But if you're relying on 400, 500 fans, and Sterling Albion's fan base isn't much more than that. I mean, you know, like a, a Celtic game will get, you know, 50, 60,000, and there's hundreds of thousands of fans around the world. Albion's not like that. So you are relying on 400, 500 fans, and I just think it's a flaw with that. Yeah, I mean, even, even Motherwell in, in the Premiership, you know, what, 4,000 4, or so, 4,500, mm-hmm. I think it's a struggle for them, the Welsh society. And Hearts are the perfect example. But, you know, getting that balance between wages and what you're bringing in from fans and subscriptions and things, 
It's really hard. It's, it's not perfect for everybody. I think that's the point you're making. It's, there's no one size fits all. That you know, it worked for some, won't work for others. And there, there's there's certainly a, a pride from from owning your club. I mean, I, I still feel that. I mean, I'd rather it was in the hands of the fans than. Um, someone who purely didn't care, and the, and the guy who did before actually did care was a light, lifelong Star Albion fan. Did so much for the club. Um, it was just the debts were getting a bit much, but um, it, it is difficult. It is certainly difficult. You mentioned in Spain. In Spain, it is more common for clubs or organisations to have multiple sports playing under the banner. Mm. I wonder with Sterling, with the Super Six franchise coming in, Sterling Albion being there, one of the six clubs selected, whether there are more opportunities for football clubs not to necessarily work with a competitor in the game but to work with a different sport who requires similar facilities I think with the Super 6 they have to have access to a um, an astral pitch and certainly in Australia there's lots of really good examples of that like the Amy Stadium in Melbourne who help you know, host a, a, a range of different sports yeah. sometimes I feel like we could there's more potential for that, certainly in Scotland and maybe even the UK. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I think maybe the problem with Stirling is that Stirling actually has quite a strong rugby club, uh, much stronger than, than the football team. So, you know, if it was to go one way, it would probably be Albion going to to, to Stirling County. Um, I know they do have a, quite a close relationship. They, they, they share things like uh, pitch coverings and stuff like that, the, the unsexy stuff about football. But... Um, yeah, I, 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 as I mentioned in the piece there, um, I think diversification could be a, a way forward. There was the offer that was competing with the fan ownership offer, which was from, a, I've forgotten his name, a Dunblane surgeon, I think, um, who wanted to turn the club into uh, you know, a, a top-class um, you know, surgery, a sports surgery and sports science facility. Um, that would have been interesting. At the time, I have to say, I was on the side of the fan ownership model because you get kind of swept up in that and it's a, a very romantic thing for the fans to own the club. Um, but I, I would have liked to see that in an alternate universe, see how that might have panned out a little differently. Neil, onto your own piece. Perhaps not as much romance. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell us about what you've written. Well, actually, yeah. It, you say there's not. As, I was speaking to my wife today, and she said there's not. I said the other two pieces we're, we're discussing are quite emotional, and, and mine's not. And I'm reminded of the episode of Black Mirror, uh, which I remember when a, someone ordered a replacement husband who was a robot and ended up living in the attic. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that's emotional or not. Um, it certainly seemed at the time. So the, the piece I've written it was a real. It was more of a look at how. My, my knowledge and understanding of how the game's changed in terms of technology since I started working in it and to try and look ahead, thinking about some of the research and um, projects that I know are underway at universities around artificial intel- intelligence and virtual realities and how they, how they may, may be applied to football in the future. We know now it systems that are been able to gather lots of information from different games around not just the country but the globe recognising patterns of play, recognising movements that certain players make and using that to build machine learning capacity that can tell coaches, medics, who, which players may be more predisposed to certain injuries because of the movements they make or how to set your defence up um, against different oppositions. I think it came to the fore with the story around the Leeds coach and the spying on an opposition team through the hedges. You know, most teams will do their set pieces and shape the day before a game, 
probably at a pretty similar time, and it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out when that's going to be. Um, and I wondered whether the artificial intelligence and virtual realities provided a different way for clubs to do that. Um, we talk about recovery now more and more. Could players learn their set pieces from the comfort of their couch with Google or similar glasses on? that put them into an avatar where they're seeing the opposition and seeing the way that the set pieces will unfold in real time. It's not there yet, um, but I don't see it being a, a million miles away. And you talk about the past reliance on expert opinion, but isn't there truth? Doesn't the bias bring a bit of truth? Isn't the opinion the beauty as well? Do you really see this fully taking over the, the scout that you, you mentioned in the piece? It's a classic argument here. Yeah, no, no I don't. I think it's a it's a useful tool to challenge um, to challenge our preconceptions. And for every time that I've heard maybe a coach or a scout say something, and I've thought I'm not sure that the data would necessarily support that. There's been other times where I've felt they're absolutely on the on the button, and they're summarising what would take a scientist or a computer programmer weeks, if not months, to calculate. They can summarise in 30 seconds from watching a player, and there's a there's a huge skill and a great value in that. But I think it would allow teams and clubs to check their biases and to check their thought process and decision-making process to decide, is this the best way to set the team up or is that the best player to sign? We think about artificial intelligence might start to be able to help us understand what players do when they're away from the club, which is a huge amount of time. And when we're paying what is now inordinate amounts of money for players, understanding what they do away from the club, away from the training through smart sensors is going to be as important as watching their performance on the pitch. So I, 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 wouldn't, I would never say it's a replacement. I think it's a useful addition uh, to the toolkits that clubs are using, and they are adding to them all the time. The backroom staff in, 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 in clubs is now much bigger than it ever was. Oh, massive, yeah. I mean, I, I worked for the Celtic View 20-odd years ago, and I used to be a physiotherapist, a kit man, a press man, um, and that was it really and you, you go on a phone trip now with Scotland or Celtic or Rangers and there's a cast of thousands and you're, you're one of them you know about it but what always got me about your article reading it was you know we, 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 we in our line of work we, we, we judge players we mark them we say right he's a 5 out of 10 he's a 6 out of 10 um, but you know what artificial intelligence a computer could never do show is the state of mind you know, I mean, we don't know what's going on in these players' lives. We don't know what's influencing them. What, you know, where they're at in their head, where they're, they're, they're mentally right, you know. And uh, that that just seems to me to be the limitation of it. You don't know mentally where that player is at with his, his state of mind, do you? No, that's right. And I think it's something that we, we overlook consistently when we think about recruitment and talent selection. And I'll use that term, understanding it's, it is flimsy and it, it means different things to different people. I don't think we've got a great way of assessing that yet, but what machine learning might be able to help us do is understand consistency, which players are more consistent in performing the actions that the coach is asking them to do. Would that reflect their mental state? Probably not, but it's certainly what we want players to do is is to be consistent over time. I remember listening to Mick Rathbone talk about his dread at, at reading the Sunday paper and looking down the list to see... Um, at what his rating was going to be, you know, and if he if he got a four or five, he was devastated. And uh, he talks about that in the smell of football. It can't it can't get away from that. It can't tell us how players are going to respond under pressure. What it can tell us is what are their consistent actions when they are under pressure. What do they do, and is that different to when they're not? Do they perform differently at home or away? I mean, there's some really good research in the NBA that shows how teams perform 
at home and away from home, which I don't think in football yet we've got to that point. But the more games are played, are analysed, are tagged in a in a way that allows these metrics to be produced, the computers are running in the background will whether they are making sense of that is a different matter, but they will start to use that to build out algorithms and to try and tell us something we don't know about the sport. Do you, um, people attach quite a lot of meaning to this kind of the whole analytics versus, you know, I would class it as proper football men versus modern football men. And whether you buy into analytics, you're classed in, in, in one or the other camps, of course, that's, that's rubbish. Um, but do you think there are a lot of people who, um, you know, when you speak to backroom staff, I've spoken to many backroom staff who say that certain manager wasn't really interested in, in analytics. I know this isn't analytics, it's is taking it a step further, but by taking it a step further, do you think there will be a lot of managers who do see this as kind of replacing them with a robot as such and maybe and maybe be against it? Um, I, I think that could happen. What, what I would hope it would do is prompt coaches to ask different questions. This is, going back to the earlier point, I don't think it replaces anyone, but it, it starts to help people answer questions. One of the big problems with GPS, which is now synonymous with the game or global positioning system, is we, we ask players to wear them, but we haven't asked a question. We just use the information because it's interesting. It's really interesting when you ask a question. Does that player run more under these circumstances than others? Or are certain actions linked to more goal-scoring opportunities or preventing goals? Those questions are interesting. So I think if it helps clubs and coaches ask questions that make their team better or that the answer to that question can help them coach in a more effective manner um, I don't think it's anything to be apprehensive about and more something to use until you find the best use for it and if at the end of it you think it actually isn't adding anything you've come from that from a more considered approach rather than dismissing out of hand which you know, to me, uh, that would seem like a sensible approach. Um, but I appreciate you know lots of different views in the game, and um, you know you can't distill it to numbers, but it can help you answer some of the questions that we do sit around and talk about at length, or at least provide a different perspective on those questions. What do you think? Thinking of the footballer as a human being, I know it's hard to do, but what what will be the impact on a player of thinking I'm being constantly monitored, even when I'm away from the training ground? It's it's pretty terrifying. If I was in another workplace as a trade union rep, I'd be stopping this in its tracks. Yeah, and I've spoken to senior pros about this and, and, and young coaches and around the mindset that you have to have that at the minute, if you train once a day, you've almost got someone looking over your shoulder judging you for 90 minutes. Um, very few of us will have that in our job. There's certain periods where we know we have to be on our, on our game and there's other periods where we can be a wee bit more relaxed. Um if you come at it from a position that we are using this information to make a decision on whether we sign you or whether we play you, then it probably is a negative. If you come at it from the angle of this is about helping you to be a better player, um, then if if, it, if I was a player, I would see that as a positive. Because mm. the former of those arguments is more like the use of this stuff for insurance premiums and things like that and, and predicting illness among people. And I guess when it comes to signing players... You can't tell if they're going to be a good teammate either or if they're going to be 
bit of a knob that goes out on a Thursday night or anything like that. It doesn't. I suppose the monitors do tell you. That. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. You know, they can tell you how well people are sleeping. Uh, and there are clubs that spend a huge amount of money on trying to help players sleep better if they're in hotel rooms twice a week or if they're away from home. The, this type of sensor technology can give you a better understanding of which players are sleeping better or are getting to bed at a certain time or are doing some sort of habitual activity outside of football, which is probably a good thing. Um, so what you're saying is rather than rather than the old story of Fergie, you know, dragging Lee Sharp out of a house at three in the morning, all he needed to do is just go on his laptop. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. team, the team that drinks together. Remember that day, the, the Rangers one. Yeah. Richard Goff said the team that drinks together wins together, and you're taking all the fun out of it. <laughs> you're yeah. sucking the life out of these guys. Yeah. What do, you, what do you say to that kind of thing? Because I very obviously come from the, the more romantic and nostalgic tradition. Um, what do you say to those interpretations that this sucks the, the chaos, the romance, the poetry, the unpredictability out of football and it's just a computer game? Um, but it's, you know, it, well, I, I, don't, I, I guess my perception is I don't see it like that. I think... As much as we do behind the scenes to understand what might happen, when the players go onto the pitch, there is an inherent nature of unpredictability. That's the great thing about football. You can have a freak goal, you can have possession that's in the 60 and 70 percentages, but still have the other team win. You are never going to get rid of that. But if you come from the position that I want to prepare my team or prepare my players in the best possible way to win and be successful, and I think that's what all football fans want for their club, what all coaches want, then this is a, a tool or a way of preparing them that might help you manage that unpredictability to, to a greater extent, which to, to me would, would seem sensible. Um, and I, I, don't think it, I don't think it would take away any of the romance. You know, we spoke about some seasons earlier on and there's some key turning points in, in lots of seasons that you can't predict with a computer programme. You can't model... That's not going to change that. It's not going to change the talking points. But if we want our coaches to, to be more armed with information, then this, is a, this I think, will come into the game. It's, it's already there. It's being used by TV broadcasting rights. It's being used by gambling companies. We should want that to be used by our coaches and, and for players to use that to help them get better. It's fascinating stuff. Stephen, tell us about your own piece. It goes by to Wednesday morning. It was January the 16th. Um, it's a piece you would never want to write, obviously, by the death of my father. But um, I'd come back from, back from Dubai on a Monday night from Celtic, Gabardine, Hibs had been in the winter break. And I was just glad I got back in time because the call came at half past 11 on a Wednesday morning saying he'd come to your father's house. They didn't tell me what it was for, but the minute you go in the street and you see the police car, you get a fair idea. And... I think after the doctor had been and the police had left, I was sitting there myself with my father in the room next door, relative silence. And his paper, he had this, a copy of The Sun sitting on the table. Paper, he didn't read his own son's paper, but it's a different matter. But, um, yeah, he was sitting with a copy of The Sun on the table and his glasses on top, and it was turned to the football. He'd been up that morning at half eight. The kid had gone at half eight, he'd gone back to his bed, and he just passed away in bed. Perfect in so many ways, actually. But it was, it was tons of the football and it set me thinking that in actual fact, he was very much a product of his time, my dad. He was a working class man, born in 1938, grew up in East End of Glasgow, quite depressed in his thoughts and his emotions. And actually the only conversations we ever really had about anything were about football. 
I didn't know what he thought about Brexit. I've no idea how he voted in NDF. I don't know what he thinks about global warming. You know, Prince Philip, three-point turns, no idea. Not a clue. Um, all we really talked about was football. And I, I, I was just sitting there thinking about that. My, my, my older brother agreed that we, you know, as I say in the piece, I could tell you every detail of Celtic playing Red Star Belgrade in 1969 or whenever when Jimmy Johnston, it was nil-nil at half-time, first leg of a European Cup game. Jockstein follows J- Jimmy Johnston to dressing room, says, right, we man, you don't like flying. You turn it on for me in the second half. I'll leave you home for the second leg. Jimmy Johnson goes out, plays the game of his life. Celtic win 5-1. Jockstein keeps his promise. I know that. I don't know my own father's parents at all because he never spoke about them. He didn't speak about things that actually mattered. He spoke about football. He spoke about Jim Baxter. He spoke about Scotland at Wembley in 67 when he was only 29 or Celtic and Rangers playing the European finals in the six-week period. And he talked about the, you know, the pubs in Glasgow were uniquely kind of like full of camaraderie and goodwill with the Celtic and Rangers fans that week. But stuff that actually mattered, no. And, and you know, it just made me think that we talk about, particularly now where we're talking about hooliganism and, and, and strict liability and the behaviour of fans and how bad f- football is and how the politicians want to legislate and do this, that and the next thing. We never talk about, on a core level, what football does for does for us as males which is, and females. It unites us. You know, it's, it's a bonding ritual. It's sort of people go into a pub, you go into the horseshoe, two guys who don't know each other, they'll maybe start talking about football. You know, you're standing at a bus stop, it's like the weather. You talk about the football. Over the water cool, you talk about the football. Um, if you're a father, thankfully I've got two daughters that couldn't care less about football, but there will be a lot of us, you know, we went to the football for the first time with our dads. It's a bonding ritual. And it's a really valuable social tool, and yet your politicians are now calling it almost a curse upon our houses. You know, we don't we don't think it, you know, it's, the, it's a national narrative, it's an obsession. People talk about it, particularly in Scotland, and yet all we ever hear about, and again, I accept some responsibility on behalf of the media, all we hear about are the negatives. Well, amen to that, certainly. I think a, a theme that's come up a lot in pieces in Nutmeg and in this podcast is relationships with, with dads. Um, um, through that, I, I wrote in one of my own books uh, about a chapter called Going With Dad. And I know it's the, I, I take my daughter, for instance, but it was mainly about fathers and, and sons because that's what I've known. And the line I used was, it's a funny way of saying I love you, but away nonetheless. And that comes Without having to say the words. Yeah, yeah and I mean, what, what really struck me is is that I did, I, I, in those hours after my dad passed away, I sat in the, 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 the living room and I started thinking about doing a column in it for the paper. I wasn't being opportunistic. I was just thinking it would help me, actually. It was quite helpful, you know, to write it down and to get this all down. Um, and I did, I, did, I did it, and the morning after my dad's uh, funeral appeared, and usually I don't put stuff in social media calls there because, it, you know, the, the, the reaction if you write about Rangers and Celtic can be vitriolic, but I, I put that one up because I wanted it to go up as a kind of tribute to my dad, and the reaction was, was exceptional. And the reaction was really people saying, I recognise that. That chimes with me. The amount of, 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 of guys or, or, or daughters, Margaret Bryce of Greenock, I can think of a few St Mern fans, Rangers fans, Celtic fans. One, one or two of my English colleagues retweeted it. I had, I had messages from Leeds United fans. There was a guy, a Leeds United fan, whose father died on exactly the same day. And he came to me and said, you know what, that really resonates with me. We never spoke about anything serious either. And what, what, what came through was that I think so many of us are the kind of sons and daughters of repressed, emotionally uptight parents 
who can't really talk about things that actually matter. And the only time I actually saw emotion from him was when Archie Gemmell scores that goal in 78, when George McCluskey scores against Ajax in 82, listening to Radio Clyde. Aberdeen winning the Cup Winners Cup. I remember that being a night of great atmosphere in the, in, in the house. And those are the kind of memories you have. And the golden memories, but in a way you're thinking, God, that was the only time I ever really saw so much emotion or saw sort of kind of man beneath, if you like. Um, you know, as I kind of said, as a sort of sign-off line, it was like football was almost like the sort of Trojan horse that stormed the portcullis, guarding his emotions and just sort of let them go. Just every now and then you saw them coming out. Um, sort of a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Yeah, it's sad in a way. And it, it. I, I think what was good about it was that I suppose me, 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 me my, my, my sort of family, we we thought maybe he was a bit maybe on the spectrum before it was diagnosed. There was something not quite quite normal about this relationship we had with our father. And doing that and getting that reaction made me realise, no, it was entirely normal <laughs> because there are so many people in exactly the same boat. And it, to me, it was extraordinary. It was like 200 people got in touch to say, yeah, you know what, I recognise that, which yeah. is good. I recognise that my, my dad is is is, uh, is is quite similar in that. Well, we're both terrible at talking about things that actually yeah. that actually matter. My dad's not a football fan, but we're both we're both tennis fans and 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 both big Andy Murray fans. Um, and it's not it's not I'm not comparing it at all. But it, it was similar, you know. Recently, obviously, with Andy Murray saying he was going to retire. One of my first thoughts was, what am I going to talk to my dad about? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that totally changed with me. I can really see in these sentiments the importance of football and mental health, actually. This is the way it can be used in the future as, as a way of, of talking. It's interesting because, you know, in, in, our, in our newspaper conference, um, the news reporters, the editors, they're, they're, they're quite scathing about Scottish football, as so many people are. You know, they say, oh, it's rubbish, you know. They'd rather have Man United and Arsenal on the back page every day, and, and they downplay it, they downplay it. But then you have a situation where... Um, before Christmas, my dad's mental faculties were beginning to fail. His body was beginning to fail. And all, really, all we really had to talk about was the football. And, and you do have this kind of memories. Scotland, don't you? The, the, the oh, Alzheimer's. Scotland, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think that's, I think that's marvellous. That, that, that people are able to... to almost, you know, because you have older, older people by his very nature, the, the sort of ageing process, dementia, short-term memory loss is chronic but they can still remember a cup final from 1957 or, or you know, and, and, and that's fantastic. And how can how can you see that process and, and the sort of time that gives you with your parents and think football's anything but a force for good? And harnessing that good as, as things like Alzheimer's Scotland do is so important. A couple of uh, elements of the piece that really interest me, aside from the personal story, albeit it's an example of you, Dad, he wanted Scottish clubs to do well in Europe, just a simple line. And people did. And you just mentioned Rangers having goodwill towards Celtic. Why has that become so quarrelsome, to use a quote? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, he, he, my dad was a Celtic supporter. He grew up half a mile away from Celtic Park. But I never once heard him make a derogatory remark about Rangers. That that was never the way we were brought up. We weren't allowed to go to old firm games and so on. Um, Because I I just think there was more respect. Maybe, maybe, Maybe this is sepia tinged. <clears throat> but I do think in the seventies, I just think there was a bit more respect. Rivalry was rivalry. You know, listen, they still sung the songs. Um, but th- this whole kind of Safeco stuff that we see now, and this whole sort of, you know, th- this this dehumanising of each other through social media, which really brings out the absolute worst in, in humanity, in my opinion. Um, 
It does. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's a bit like saying you can't understand the words of pop songs these days. Maybe you just get to an age where, you know, you just you just begin to think young people would this that and the next thing. I just think there's a there's a really depressing lack of respect because if you take that rivalry away, what do we have left? If you're a Celtic fan, you don't have Rangers. They'll say, oh, you know, Roddy died. Good luck. But you know. You know, the rivalry still exists because Rangers are still there in some shape or form. And, you know, if you don't have your, your rivals, if you don't have Stirling Albion against Alwa, what do you have? You know, it becomes a much less interesting game, which is why I think the belittling of each other, well, normal rivalry is, is, is excessive. Neil, do you think Liverpool and Everton has got a lot more acidic? Because that's certainly my view from afar, going from the classic days of standing on the cop or the Gladys Road end together through to what it's like now, it seems on Twitter to be pretty nasty where I just don't remember it being like that. I've not, I, mean, I haven't lived, um, I left home in 98, which is a long time ago. Um, so, I, and I haven't, I would class myself now, I went to, um, my dad took me to my first Liverpool game, which was against Arsenal, uh, and Ronnie Rosenthal was asked to take his necklace off by the referee, and, and that's that's the biggest thing I remember being in the Anfield Road end, which was the father and son, which again probably wouldn't be allowed to be called that anymore. It would have to be the parent and child area, but you know you sent your check off and you waited, and if your tickets came back, that was great, and if your check came back, it wasn't so great. Um, and I remember on one of the matches we were walking along the side of Stanley Stanley Park. And the buses stopped with the opposition fans and they just piled off uh, and we were just intermingled with them. And I, I don't remember ever seeing any trouble or maybe I was too young to recognise it. Um, I, I started going to the matches when I was eight, I think, with my, with my dad. Um, I'm not aware of that now, but I, I'm not in that environment. I probably don't look for that type of thing on... But they always said that about Liverpool and Everton, didn't they? They always said that was that was where the, the fans could mingle together and there was none of the hatred. And, yeah. and when you consider that the Liverpool was the same kind of Irish and you know, the same religious kind of divide to a much lesser degree than Glasgow, I, I, I would imagine it's quite surprising. But, it, I mean, I assume they're, they're strictly segregated now, yeah? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that unity hit its pinnacle after the horror of Hillsborough when it was Liverpool was so united and and it just seems to have been in the last 30 years. Um, Michael Walker, a great writer who has a piece in this issue of Nutmeg, writes in his book about northeast football how much more acidic Newcastle and Sunderland has become uh, in, in the last couple of decades or, or longer as well, since the 80, 70s, 80s. And it just it, it interests me, I suppose, sociologically to, to wonder why it's happening, or does it just seem worse because I see it on, on Twitter, which didn't exist? I don't know. I, I wonder, Stephen's mentioned rightfully a couple of times, that things that are products of, of the media. I wonder if, if, if it's at a top level, because the point I was going to make is, as, as a fan of a lower league club, I probably don't feel that things are more acidic. I mean, uh, yeah, sure, when, if, you, if you're playing a rival uh, for those 90 minutes, you know, they, they, are, they are the enemy, but I don't get any... I know it's a much smaller sample size, but, you know, I... I, I worked for my first job in, in journalism was for a local paper firm in, in Alloa, um, and largely that was covering Sterling. But when the the, the chief uh, football writer, so to speak, or sports writer was was on holiday or whatever, I'd go and cover Alloa. And I remember the first time, kind of walking in quite naive, you know, thinking, 
oh, I have to go to Alloa today, I'm not going to enjoy this, you know, t- 10 minutes into the game, you know, I- I'd been handed a sausage roll and a cup of tea, and at halftime, Jerry, the guy, played Abba Gold on the, over the speakers, and I thought, you know what, this actually isn't too bad. <laughs> and <laughs> Point, you know, we, 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 as journalists, we quite often get, why don't you say that about that person, or why don't you say this about that person? Quite often that person's a human being to us, somebody we've met, somebody we've dealt with, somebody who's decent to us, um, somebody who's courteous, you know, you don't get a cup of tea or the biscuits any longer so much, but, you know, we we, we personalise it, whereas I think in social media, somebody is just that so-and-so all the time, and that that's that the heart of a root, you know, at the root of a lot of it, I think, you know. Most yeah. most people are decent people, aren't they? Of course they are. yeah. One of my Liverpool jerseys when I was younger, I had a 10 on the back for John Barnes, and, and when I've listened to some of the, the comments he's made recently on different topics, it did resonate that just because people aren't willing to say something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and I think you know, maybe that what we see on social media is is a facet of fans that don't necessarily go to the games that weren't contributing to that environment that we've discussed twenty or thirty years ago. Why they have those opinions is a different matter, but um, yeah, I still like to think that the vast majority of people are, are decent, and maybe social media isn't. We, we kind of think it's representative, but well, maybe yeah, it we, isn't yeah, as yeah. representative, or we shouldn't give it as much kudos or as value as, as perhaps we do. Just just because of its accessibility. But yeah, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent point. But to bring it back to, to the piece I did, uh, I think it was gratifying to see actually the reaction on Twitter that day because you get so much negativity. And you know, you're quite fragile at that point when you've lost a relative and people are nice to you, it can set you off. But um, it was just good to see some... It just made you realise there are so many really normal, decent people out there. And you can get a really skewed perspective, and I and I think it's an interesting point in your ways. Is I mean, how, how representative is it of the of the normal population? My wife's not on it. My kids aren't on it. You know, my my my, my dad was never on it. How representative is it, or do, do do we give it a false sort of importance? You know, I think one of the points that re- resonated for me reading the article, and if if not most got any Japanese listeners, I, I apologise if this is a, an incorrect pronunciation, but they've got a word a kai guy, which is a reason for being. And they talk about in the Japanese lexicon that there's no word for retirement, that you just find something else to do. And I think football and sport in general, it gives people that. It gives them the routine. It, it, it gives you an opportunity to voice your opinion when you might not get asked your opinion on anything else. And it matters. And it does matter because that, you know, football is and sport is about the people who pay to go and watch and their opinion matters. And I think that's a great thing about it, that it gives people a routine. People spoke to, to go back to examples from Everton of they would have their routine of the Gladys Street end and the chippy on the corner and, and they would have this set routine that we've heard about when clubs move stadiums they lose they lose that connection to the fans and I, and I think that's a great thing that it goes beyond retirement you can continue to do it into whatever age you choose to do it and continue to have a connection with different generations you're watching people maybe 50 years younger than you mixing with people much younger than you and sharing experiences and sharing stories to me that that is the great strength of football and certainly goes against any opinion that it's 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 detrimental mm. although uh, talking of um, media acidity and the Clackmannanshire Sterling Derby. I remember reading a Sterling Sentinel from the 1920s when I was doing some research, and the, they used to call the people of Alloa the bottle blowers because of the, the that's what they actually did, <laughs> rather than because they, that was the most nasty term I came across. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the bottle blowers. Were, to be because fair, of, yeah, yeah. It was relating <laughs> to their industrial prowess as the <laughs> leading exporters of glassware. <laughs> Okay, to each of you, have you had a chance to look at 
nutmeg issue 11 and has any article caught your eye i'll start with you neil um well i think to, to just to carry on with that point of um <clears throat> the kind of connectivity and bringing people together i read the all to pay for by gary roger and it was it was pretty surprising to, to see just how much just how much it was costing people now to to have to watch football and um, we've got Sky, but I always lament when I come home on a Wednesday or Thursday. I think I'll sit down and watch Liverpool tonight, and I find out it's actually on BT Sport. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm too tight or too—I don't want to get that. So I, we, you know, we can't watch the match. But whether if people started to rally against that, it would bring people back together to watch football in in more social environments. Whether it's a social club, which is an article on later on in Nutmeg, or whether it's a pub, or, or or whether it's the clubs themselves offering people the chance to watch the game in the stadium it's not happening in um, that although it's a, it seems detrimental at the moment we might get to a point in the in the future where it, people decide well we'll just go and watch it together in more social environments which would strengthen the benefit of sport but i thought that was a really interesting article that you know, when you break it apart and you pull apart all the different facets how much it does cost what should be the average fan is 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 pretty hard. Mm. That that's that's the piece I also picked out as well because I, I did see a, a correlation between Gary's piece and also when you were talking about unmanned cameras and and, and um, that that obviously plays in. I think I think we are on the verge. I've written a lot about this actually. I think a lot about it as well because at the moment you're right. There's a lot of fragment fragmentation of of rights. I mean I. I tuned in to, to watch Real Madrid Barcelona at the weekend there and found out that it was on a channel that I didn't even know existed. Um, so th- th- I think the, the the prospect of unmanned cameras, and I've, I've, there's a company in Germany called Pixelot that they're experimenting with this uh, lower league German games where it's unmanned cameras that track the ball and... and um, and in MLS, they had a service called MLS Live, where you pay a subscription fee and you can watch any game from around the country. I think I I, I look at you know everyone everyone complains about how there are so few Scottish games on TV or not everyone, but a, a lot of people do. Um, and I just wonder if that's a solution. Where I, I feel like we're on the brink of a of a of some form of broadcast revolution, where you've got the Premier League dealing with they've sold rights to Amazon recently, and and I think uh, they're, they're, the Premier League's experimented with an app in Singapore where. You like the MLS Live thing I mentioned and I think we Scotland Scottish football got left behind with the television bubble the last time um, and this is the next big movement and I really don't want us to be left behind again because you wonder how many times you can be left behind until you're completely forgotten I, 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 I don't think Graham I, don't, I think this will be the last conventional broadcasting deal Scottish football does probably this league one because as you quite rightly say the market's changing so fast you get Amazon you know, you, 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 have, you have Facebook, you, you, you know, you have so many different potential platforms coming through that are just going to change the way people think about it completely. You know, you, you know the, the, when the contract ends with three, four years, think nobody has the first idea what's going to happen to the media rights market, you know, because it just changes so fast. And even, even when they were negotiating the last Scottish football deal for the SPFL, if they thought BT Sport were going to be a real big presence, we're going to come in and do it exclusively. Yeah. The backside fell out of BT Sport in a very short space of time. So it's a really fast-moving market. Nothing has been more amusing about all that this season than being the fan of an English football league team and trying to find a channel called Quest, which the highlights are now on, which I thought was some sort of Alan Partridge reference, but it is. It is it's actually the most enjoyable show they've done of all the many incarnations of English football league highlights in recent years. I know you haven't had a chance to look at a copy of the oh, beautifully smelling nutmeg. I, I am looking forward to it. 
Yes, Jim McLean by Neil Forsyth is brilliant, but we lead with the first piece uh, it, by the aforementioned Michael Walker is about Hugh McIlvanny, who sadly passed away um, recently, an absolute giant in your game. Yeah, I I never met Hugh McIlvanny, strangely enough. I, I know colleagues who were on the kind of Hall of Fame committee with him, didn't really know him, but um, yeah, I mean, he was he was the Muhammad Ali of the, of the, of the of the game, really, wasn't he? He was he was he was up there. Way ahead of everyone else, um, because every word was crafted and 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 carved like a, like a like a like a piece of steel. You know, he, he was he was just a, just a master craftsman. Um, and I remember reading some you know some of the stories you heard. The obituaries were remarkable. You know about you know, Rumble in the Jungle when he was there, being in the tunnel with Celtic in 1967, and so on. It just just he he was living history. You know, a bit like the Dimblebees in broadcasting and, 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 and television or, or, you know, he, he was there for every key moment of British sporting history in the last century. There are a number of highlights in issue 11. I think it's an absolute corker. I enjoyed particularly the pieces about Archibald Leach and about Thomas Gravison, who is a lot more eccentric than I really knew when he was playing. And I always enjoy a piece about Panini Snickers, which does appear in this one. Well, the stock cars at the side of the pitch are revving their engines, which means it's just about time to go. My thanks to our guests, Graham, Neil and Stephen. Issue 11 of Nutmeg is out now. Details online at nutmegmagazine.co.uk. It can also be bought at Six Yard Box in Edinburgh and Social Recluse in Glasgow. The next Nutmeg podcast will tumble into your ears in a fortnight's time. Until then, goodbye from me and let the games come thick and fast.